0: climbing gold is a production of duct tape and beer with support from the north face never stop exploring dr squatch get dirty stay clean chorus
1: explore perfection an element restoring health through hydration uh my name is michael kennedy i've been climbing since about 1969 I can't believe you've been climbing since 1969. Well, I'm an f- old fucker, so what do you expect? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Michael Kennedy was a great alpinist in the U.S. who mostly climbed from the 70s until early 2000s, let's say. But maybe more importantly, he also ran Climbing Magazine for almost 20 years. So he's had an outsized impact on the climbing world.
2: I'm George Lowe and I live above Golden, Colorado at about uh, 2,300 meters or so in sort of out in the countryside. I've been climbing 60 years at this point and uh, I'm still climbing.
0: George Lowe is a legendary alpinist who has put up new routes all over the world. In fact, he has a named buttress, a buttress named after him on Mount Everest, on the East Face on a route that he put up. I feel like in some ways that's a good Like, if someone has a part of Mount Everest named after them, you know that they did some climbing.
3: (laughs) Yeah.
4: Jim Donini, and I live in Uray, Colorado, and it's starting to snow.
0: (laughs) Well, Jim Donini has, in some ways, outgrown his original climbing accomplishments. Like, I don't even know what Jim Donini has climbed over the years, because he's just a legend at this point. (laughs) You know, it's like, I mean, he's an 80-year-old who's been contributing to the climbing world for the last... 60 years 55 years or something. So I mean, I don't know he's put up roots all over the world. He's been motivated He's uh, you know contributed to the American alpine club. And like, he's just he's just been a fixture of the American climbing community for uh, You know twice as long as I've been alive practically <laughs> <laughs> How long have you been climbing Jim since 1964 so that's 59 years I thought you were gonna say that's before they invented math. It's like really hard to know how long you've been climbing <laughs>
4: Price was a corporal. He was so so long ago, but George has me beat. I think,
0: man. I just don't often talk to people who've been climbing for sixty years. <laughs> like that's
3: that's, <laughs> that's pretty proud.
2: Well, I still love it.
3: The North Ridge of Latok I. In the world of hard alpinism, this route is a legend. Forty-five years ago, four friends pushed the spirit of alpinism to a new height. The nearly completed line they left behind would become a sort of holy grail that rebuffed the next two generations of elite alpine climbers, even as standards rose and gear improved. So much so, there were so many failed attempts that people wondered, would it ever be climbed? Today we talk with Michael, George, and Jim, the surviving
0: members of what many consider the dream team of hard alpine climbing, about one of climbing's most beautiful failures and the legend that it spawned. I'm Alex Arnold. I'm Fitzka Hall. This is Climbing Gold.
3: Alex, where
0: is Latoc One? So Latak is in the Karakoram in Pakistan, near K2, and it sits in this incredible amphitheater on the Choctaw Glacier, and the North Ridge dominates the valley.
2: It's actually on the same way that you go up towards K2, except you don't go as far up. You you walk into a scol, well, drive into a scoli now, uh, but we had to walk into a scoli then, and from there you'll walk up the drainage of the Baltoro, and you and you go a short distance, and then you turn left towards the Choctaw Glacier and follow the Choctaw
0: Glacier up to the base of Latok One. Can one of you guys describe uh Tock One and what it is and, and what the North Ridge looks like? It's just a classic
1: big buttress ridge going to a sharp pointy summit. I mean, it's, it's just beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful routes I've ever been on. And the, the climb is
2: roughly... Twenty five hundred or so meters, eight thousand feet, and it's the rock is basically pretty darn good. There's never an incredibly difficult pitch on it, but there's never, almost never, a, a very easy pitch. If if you stay on the ridge itself, the objective hazards are not terribly bad, uh, unless it gets really warm and the cortices start collapsing. There are cortices along the ridge that you have to reverse under, but it's a very very interesting climb because. You're climbing rock, you're climbing mixed, you're climbing
0: ice, you're at high altitude. Had the Northridge of Latok 1 been attempted when you guys went in there? Was it already a, a, an objective for alpinism?
2: I, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure not. I, I'm almost certain it was not. I, mean, I just picked it up in one of the Shipton books. Uh, I saw the picture of it because I was. I, I have always admired what Shipton and Tillman did in terms of going light and fast Uh, you know they did some incredible explorations in in the in the whole karakoram particularly in that area of pakistan what's pakistan at the present
0: time so you really just saw a picture of it in the book and decided that that looks like a fantasy route and you guys went and tried it and then you created one of the the gems of alpinism really
2: well i don't know we created it we didn't finish it
3: In the summer of 1978, George Lowe, Jim Danini, Michael Kennedy, and the late Jeff Lowe were at the cutting edge of climbing. They were part of a growing movement of mountain climbers that were leaving behind the slow and heavy expeditions of the past in favor of an emerging form of alpinism known as alpine style. Small teams climb light and fast, usually in a single push with minimal fixed ropes. The commitment level goes through the roof. Although alpine-style climbing was becoming more commonplace in lower ranges like the Canadian Rockies and the Swiss Alps, it was still revolutionary to take these tactics to the high peaks of the Himalaya and the Karakoram. So for many alpinists, the next logical
1: training ground was Alaska. George and I had climbed in Alaska the year before, and we had done a couple of routes, one on Mount Hunter, and the big one was the Infinite Spur on Mount Foraker. You know, George was one of my heroes because of course I knew about him and I didn't meet him until I got up to Alaska because we were climbing with Jeff Lowe and Jeff and I had climbed together a little bit. And then Jeff ended up breaking his ankle 4,000 feet up Mount Hunter. So we had to go down with him and send him out. And then George and I were left there and we said, okay, well, I guess we'll go on to Foraker. And it was a huge project. It's like a 9,000 foot face hadn't been done. It's sort of remote for the Alaska range. And so we spent 10 or 11 days on that and went through some mixed climbing and some rock climbing and big packs because it was the old days and you didn't go that fast. Anyway, we, we got done that and we, you know, we had a really good time climbing together and then George and Jeff were already planning this trip to Latok. So they invited me to come along. And we wanted a fourth because it was a big project. And uh, I knew Jim a little bit, and those guys knew him a little bit. So we invited him because we knew he was badass, basically, and he'd be a good addition. So, you know, that ended up being the team.
4: I was the oldest climber. George was one, one year younger than me. And then I think Michael and Jeff were about five years younger than George. So there was an age difference, but it wasn't extreme. And so what did you guys all bring to the team? We had all done pretty hard first and since in alpine climbing. And I, I felt privileged to be invited to climb with George and Jeff and Michael. We had So we had four people who all had a lot of experience in that kind of climbing. And uh, we just got along well, too.
2: One of the beauties of the team, in my mind, is we are reasonably well-balanced in terms of our skill levels. And we all probably had the necessary skills to lead any
1: pitch on the climb. You know, Jeff was probably the best all-around climber of us. You know, he was he was a very good rock climber, super good ice climber and mixed climber. So so he was best all around. Jim was, I think, probably a little bit better rock climber maybe even than Jeff. Um, and at that point, he didn't have this massive amount of ice climb experience. but. He was fine with that. George, of course, had a massive amount of experience in the Alpine, as well as being a pretty darn good rock climber. And I was a young gun, so I think I was the, like maybe sort of overstoked or over enthusiastic.
0: Do, do you guys remember your first impressions looking up at the route, like after the long trek in up the glaciers and you finally get to the base of the North Ridge of Late Talk 1? What did you guys think when you saw it?
4: You know, when people come into Yosemite for the first time from Fresno, from the south, and they go through the tunnel and get that view of all Cap, and they go, "Oh my God!" Well, that's what it was like. For, I said, "Oh my God! Look at that thing."
0: Being in the rural mountains in Pakistan in 1978, I mean, on an expedition like that, you wouldn't have any communications with home until, until you were back home again, basically. I mean, it's crazy because there's no communication with camp. Camp has no communication with the rest of the world. I mean, it's hard, it's, hard, it's hard to overstate how remote something like that would feel with no communications. And I think that's the hard thing with comparing epics from the, the last generations to, to any kind of modern climbing, is that it's just so different to be completely alone. You know, it's like if you can text home anytime you want with your little satellite thing and get, get weather updates nonstop and things like that, It's just not the same as as being totally detached from the world
4: we were trying to do this george said in the best style that we possibly could given our skill set at the time
1: and the state of the art of climbing at the time and again this was a time when you didn't have sat phones or anything like that i mean you were you were sort of like stepping off the edge of the world
4: and also the climb we had no beta it was every pitch was brand new to us and so I think a lot of climbs uh, that people know that this particular section is going to be really hard rock or this particular section is going to be really hard mixed climbing, but we never knew what the next pitch would
1: be until we got there. Mm-hmm. We talked about ahead of time. Ideally, we'd just do a pure Alpine sail, just, you know, packing your back, just go. But we brought enough stuff so that we could do this capsule style, which was, you know, again, if it was really difficult, you'd f- fix some ropes. Maybe spend a couple of days on a section, then move your camp up.
4: We never had an ability to cord, a fixed rope going from a base camp to where we were, so that supplies could be brought up.
0: Yeah, and so why did you guys try capsule style instead of expedition style? Well, we liked
2: it on an alpine style, but we figured there's just no hope that we could have done it with our skill set at the time and perhaps the gear that was available at the time. So that was the uh, the way that we could conceivably get up the peak and do it in the the best style that we are capable of doing. Which is capital style.
1: Right. You know, it was just a really different era. Like, the idea of of going as quickly as you go now was just, it was beyond our imagination, essentially, especially on the technical ground.
3: So after weeks spent on the approach and a few days of resting, acclimatizing, and packing gear at base camp, the team set off in early July.
2: Uh, We end up carrying about 17 days of food a uh, heavy, heavy
1: seventeen days of food. The buttress comes right down to the glacier, but we bypassed the first four or five hundred feet with in a snow gully to the left because we just we wanted to get as high as we could as quickly as we could. And then you had a long section of, that was mostly rock climbing, quite good rock climbing, not particularly difficult. We probably climbed some five nine and pull up on gear, and maybe you'd have a short head wall where you'd make a couple aid moves, things like that.
3: Initially, the team had almost 350 pounds of gear split between them. Each day, two climbers would lead while the other two Jumard fixed lines, shuttling
1: back-breaking loads. It was grueling work. And then there was a long section of sort of corniced ridge, and it was very, very exposed. And it it sort of went a little horizontal, so you're going back a bit. So you're traversing quite a bit. You know, I have some pictures, I have a picture of
4: uh, Michael Kennedy doing it, starting to a, uh, a, an ice traverse on about 70 degree ice. And his photograph shows him, his left hand is an Alpine, a Chenard Alpine hammer. And his right hand is a 70 centimeter long ice axe straight shafted. And, you know, that was the, those were the best tools available at the time.
0: And so is that is that the kind of gear you guys were using on lay
1: talk? On lay talk, we had, George had a 70 centimeter Shenard PLA. I had a forest metal ice ax with interchangeable picks, which was like brand new. I mean, that was like the first time that anyone had done something like that. And then a Shenard Alpine hammer, which is like a wooden handle with like a, you know, a hammer head and then like a little pick. Hmm,
0: like, like, like a uh, prospector's hammer. Yeah. Yeah, huh. like a, a little more sophisticated. You were doing some uh, alpine yeah. prospecting. <laughs> You're up there for yeah. prospecting for new routes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly.
4: And of course, the cams were were not in existence at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah that's crazy. It's a crazy thing now with ultralight ropes, ultralight gear, ultra, like everything is just so much warmer and lighter and more comfortable Absolutely. and easier. It's like man, it's such a different, such a different world.
4: We had leather boots. The shank in the boot was a piece of. Uh, Hardwood <laughs> made them rigid. They were called uh, Hobbler Superlights and they weren't very light yeah. compared to today's boots, they weren't light at all.
0: We'll be back with more after the break.
3: George, do you remember what the climbing was like on the North Ridge?
2: There was a middle section, well, probably two thirds the way up, where there was this really brilliant section of mixed places where you had your crampon on a piece of ice that's a couple of centimeters thick, and and your other foot is on the rock, and you got an ice axe in and a handhold, and and just this mixture of ice and rock where you were sometimes fully on the rock and sometimes fully on the ice. It was just it was really great. And the other place I remember is just getting up to the place where we had our final bivouac in the snow cave, this really gleaming sheet of quite steep ice. Oh yeah. The temperatures were just right. I just remember my ice tools going in perfectly, just thunk every time, no, no problem. And it just it just felt glorious getting up with the sun on us. And I was thinking, man, we're gonna climb this thing. We were we're over the crux. And I, I it just it felt so good uh to, to be feeling like that at that altitude, you were probably over 7,000 meters at that point in time. And it, it was just uh, a wonderful feeling to, to be there with, you know, you could see K2 in the background and uh, uh, a phenomenal place to be.
3: But even though the climbing was incredible, the overall weight of the experience began to take a toll.
4: We had 17 days of food, which sounds like a lot. But consider that when you're on a climb at altitude doing that amount of work, it's like you're on half rations all the time because you maybe have rations here for 3,000, 2,000 calories a day, and you're burning five or six. There was a time when I, I wrapped back down to get some uh, get a load while everybody else was doing something, I'd forget. And I got, had a heavy load, and I'm jumaring up, and all of a sudden, about halfway up, I lost it. I felt really, really tired. I, I started crying. I really did. I made it back up and, and I recovered. But it was very trying, that climb. I mean, day after day. And when the storm came in, the first storm lower down, we went on half rations. We just sat there for several days on half rations. Really, half rations is the quarter rations of what you actually need.
3: You all were stretched pretty thin. You know, did you guys ever butt heads? Were there disagreements?
1: There was never any conflict and there was never any feeling that, oh, I'm doing more than everybody else or or so-and-so is not pulling their weight. I mean, that was, I think, one of the most sort of special things about the trip. It really was
2: joyful, a good fraction of the time. I can remember Jeff in particular on a hard mixed pitch. He got up to this overhang and uh, you know, it was, it was clearly quite hard, and he says, "God, this is so much fun!" I mean, that was that was the
4: way we felt. A climb like that has a lot of problem solving. It's not it's not like having a crack system going straight up a old cap and a pretty obvious line. You're always saying, so. Which way do we go? What do we do now? So, the climbing, as George said, was never terribly hard it was never very easy either and you always had to uh really work through the puzzle what the where the next fish was going to go i mean it's uh,
2: doing it, solving these problems i mean it's 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 the reason i love climbing and still love climbing
0: and that wasn't just a uh, hypoxia or delirium
3: or you know
2: well it could have been
3: <laughs> <laughs> what's the longest you've spent on 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 a wall well, I've spent
0: four days on El Cap a couple times on different routes. I, I've uh, <laughs> we probably spent four or five days climbing this wall in Borneo once. Maybe it was three or four days. I don't know. We were stuck in a storm for a day. I mean, I don't think I've really spent more than four days on a route. Is four days on a route enough? I mean, to me, four or five days on a route is enough. <laughs> but I mean, to be fair, though, that's also with a slightly more modern style. Or like you know, when we did the Fitzverse, we were on route. I think we camped four times, and that felt like enough. <laughs> but we also were climbing with much lighter loads, moving much more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know it's just it's just a different world, yeah, and we were in a high altitude. It's like it's you know hard to even compare. It's just hard to imagine spending twenty six days on one face. I mean, the other thing hearing this whole story though is that the it's just hard to compare to anything modern. Because nowadays you have weather forecasts, you have communications with the outside world, you have a sat forecast. And so if you're that high on a mountain and you see the forecast that a six day storm is coming in, you would probably just retreat then knowing that you're about to be in for this incredible epic. But since those guys didn't have any kind of communications, they just wait and see and hope that each day that the storm will get better. And then when the storm doesn't get better, just repel in a storm. And it's like, those are just not the sorts of things that you do nowadays because you don't need to.
4: We knew where we were based on our observations of it from when we were down below. And we thought that we had it in the bag. We had a couple of things going. There was a a steep, about 60 meter headwall right behind this huge mound of snow. So every day, two people would push the route leading and the other two would stay behind and chew and were up to fix ropes with heavy loads. That day, Jeff and I were the work dogs, and uh,
1: Michael and George were leading the uh, climb. So we got to that point. We had time left in the day. Meanwhile, George and I went over, and I led this one A2 or A3 pitch, and George led another short pitch above that. So we'd have these a couple ropes fixed, and then we're hoping then to, from there, we would hit these, what looked like some relatively straightforward snow and ice slopes up to the summit ridge and then along the summit ridge to the top. So we felt like we were like a day from the top at that point.
4: Meanwhile, Jeff and I start digging a snow cave. So as you know, a snow cave is a bomb-proof shelter in the mountains. All will help them be breaking loose outside and you're inside warm and cozy. So we thought, great, we'll have a snow cave. They'll fix the uh, rope on the headwall. We'll leave everything behind in the snow cave the next day. We'll go to the summit. We'll tag the summit. We'll come back down to the snow cave, spend the night, and then start back down. So we had this high level of optimism. Of course, two things happened. One is halfway through digging the snow cave, I poked my head out, and I could see a storm coming in from the southwest, from the bad, bad direction. And at about the same time, Jeff started feeling ill. So it went from having this incredible feeling of elation about we are going to do this climate. There's so many days and so much pain and so much work to, well, we're in maybe a little trouble now.
0: So how sick was Jeff?
4: He was in and out of consciousness, pretty sick. Yeah, I've got a picture of him in the snow cave,
2: and he was clearly very hypoxic. His face is blue, and bluntly, I thought he was going to die. Uh,
0: and what actually happened to Jeff? How did he get so acutely sick so so quickly?
2: Jeff thought it was due to the fact he'd had uh, had been sick on the approach in when we were hiking into a Scully. Uh, my personal thought is Jeff had struggled in on other climbs with altitude. Uh, he didn't seem to have altitude acclimatize quite as well and I who knows it may be in a combination of both. Uh, But he was clearly very, very hypoxic there. And was it due to a recurrence of something else he had or just uh, not getting pulmonary edema, but just suffering from the effects of altitude? Uh, It's very hard to
3: tell. As the weather worsened, so did Jeff's condition. But even though he was in rough shape, he said he would give it one more try. The team had come too far, we actually
2: did make an attempt and we got another pitch above the hard rock pitch. When watching Jeff go up, the, trying to jumar up the hard rock pitch, it was just clear that he couldn't, that he couldn't function and we couldn't take the risk. I mean, conceivably, two of us might have been able to go to the summit, but you can't leave somebody behind. And you can't leave a pair behind in that sort of situation. The storm was bad, but but we were climbing in it. Uh, you know it wasn't blowing horrendously hard and 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 it and it wasn't terribly cold now it's, at 7000 meters it's since you don't have very much oxygen uh it doesn't have to be very cold uh, <laughs> uh because your body's not generating very much heat you just don't have enough oxygen to uh burn your f- food adequately to uh perform well
4: at least That was true of us.
0: So it was just totally out of the question to split up the team or leave Jeff behind for a little while.
4: We never considered it. In fact, we never talked about it. Right. I I just ethically, I just, in in
2: my mind, that simply is unacceptable.
4: Especially the condition he was in. Yeah. He could have worsened while we were on the climb. We had no idea. We felt that you climb together, everybody gets to the summit or nobody does.
3: So you guys talked about having good days and bad days, but I'm curious, like being stuck in that snow cave for four or five days. Uh, what do you talk about? What do you laugh about? Um, how do you keep yourself sane for that many days inside of a snow cave? Which is basically, I feel like that snow cave must be like being on the moon. You know, you're so far away from the ground. Yeah, you know, what do you? How do you? What do you do?
2: I don't remember well enough, but a lot of it is just, you know. Doing the things you have to do to stay alive, getting the melting snow for water,
1: trying to get some food. You know, when you, when you hang out with somebody in a little tent for like a fucking month, right? <laughs> it's like you can't stand the way they chew their food, right? Or they have some other little personal habit that, that just gets on your nerves, right? But that's just human nature.
2: I don't remember what we talked about. It's, it must have been pretty mundane because we were all pretty, pretty tired. Uh, I think a lot of us just sort of absorbed in your own thoughts uh, a good fraction of the time. That's right. I mean, you look at the picture of Jim in the snow cave. He, his face is all hollowed out. and His stare is just, <laughs> you could tell he was had lost the weight. And
1: and Jeff wasn't saying anything. He was semi-conscious. I mean, he was like coughing and headaches and couldn't keep any food down and just was sort of lying off in the corner.
4: But I don't recall talking a lot of the, I think you're right. A lot of the time we just spent there trying to relax, trying to get some sleep. And just our thoughts were internal. We didn't talk a lot to each other.
2: But we had some great food in the snow cave. We had Pakistani chicken soup with these god-awful Pakistani sausages that left little bits of grease floating in the chicken soup, and somehow you had to gag this down at
4: 7,000 meters. You know, I have a picture of me in the snow cave. I look i look worse than Jeff, all the weight I lost. But anyway, I'm lying down in the snow cave, It's storming outside. We know we're not going anywhere that day. We have very little food left. But we did did have uh, what George described as these Pakistani sausage. We called them donkey dicks. (laughs) And I remember, Okay, I have to eat. So I'm lying there and I get the stove going and I boil up one of these sausages in in water. And then I fell asleep for some reason. I woke up a little while later. And the sausage was sitting in the water, but all the fat had congealed. The sausage was sitting in this congealed fat and looked at it and said, I'm starving to death, but there's no way I can eat that.
0: <laughs> so did you not eat it? I did not eat it. <laughs> but I did. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is all, That is so grim. <laughs> We'll be back with more after the break. So, how bad was the storm and how many days were you guys in the snow cave?
4: You know, we spent that time in the snow cave four or five days. I can't remember
1: which. And we decided we had to go down. That first day of the descent was fucking crazy. Yeah. We
2: left Jeff's pack up there and actually one of the teams found it when I think in. You know when they climbed it, and we'd lower Jeff down the rope that had been fixed by the first propeller, and then he'd get Jeff tied in and safe, and then we'd do the the, uh, the last two people had come down, and we'd just repeat that process. And we got down, oh, a thousand fifteen hundred feet or something like that. You know, first day maybe four hundred meters, and we had to bivouac in the open in the storm on a small ledge, and I
1: thought you know, Jeff isn't going to survive the night. Jim told us, told me later that he thought he was going to wake up to a dead body.
4: I remember that bivouac. It was out in the open. We were just basically sitting on the ledge next to each other. Right. Spindrift avalanches came down all night long. I remember Jeff was right next to me. I woke up. I looked over to Jeff. He was slumped over, covered in snow. And I thought, oh God, he died. And I remember in the morning...
2: Awakening, and calling over, how's Jeff? And Jeff said, I feel great. And I thought, oh my God, that <laughs> a relief because trying to get him all the way down where we're having to basically guide his repels would have taken much longer than it took.
0: So Jeff did for re- Jeff did recover as, as you guys got lower.
4: Yes. That's correct. By the time we got to the bottom. He was probably in better shape than the rest of us.
0: <laughs> Man,
4: maybe it's because but, we, we got down lower in the altitude, and I think we did at least on the wraps. George counted the wraps. We did eighty-five pitches. <laughs> Isn't that right, George? Or I
1: can't remember.
0: I, I, I read remember somewhere it? that you guys did a hundred repels getting down. I was like, that. Is so no, many I, I thought repels. it was more
1: like eighty-five. I, I don't know. It was like ninety repels.
2: Somewhere, in, s- somewhere in that
0: range. Maybe it's fair to just round up when you start getting into the high 80s on your on your repels <laughs> you know, You're just like was well, it's, it's an absurd amount of repelling. 90 pitches of repelling is insane I mean 90 <laughs> pitches of repelling is like repelling El Cap three times But that actually doesn't really do it justice because repelling the nose three times would only take you You know half a day let's say because they're good anchors and it's clean and it's vertical but repelling 90 pitches on something like the North Ridge or late dock requires walking around on ice and down climbing things and and building all the anchors which takes forever and equalizing the anchors and There's stuff falling all around you and you're really tired because you're at high altitude So 90 pitches of rappelling on a mountain like that is an insanely long ordeal. Yeah When you when you measure rappelling in days you're in trouble. Yeah, I mean we uh, I rappelled the southeast Ridge of Cerro Torre over twelve hours, let's say, and that's something like twenty or thirty pitches. And it took half a day with two sort of elite repellers. Cause I mean we were employing all the speed tactics too. We were wrapping we were, you know, my partner knew the route super well. It's like one of those things where even speed style, it takes twelve hours to repel an alpine ridge like that. And that's only, you know, a third or a quarter of the size of, of late here. <laughs> like, can you imagine repelling something that long for I mean, it's crazy. It's so long what are the total details like how many days were you on route how many days were you trying to go up and then you were stuck in the storm for a few days and then you spent four days repelling the route but you know what was the total time on the north ridge my memory is is 26 days yeah so how did you guys maintain morale as you slowly starved for a month
2: well we're having great climbing (laughs) That's, yeah but, but that's enough up to, me to maintain a lot of morale and, great know, was,
0: climbing only gets you so far, though. I mean, if you want great climbing, you could have stayed in Yosemite. you know it's like,
2: yeah, but Yosemite, Yosemite's wonderful. and you know, don't take it wrong. i I you know the times I've spent in Yosemite are phenomenal, but it's not the Karakoram. The vertical extent of the climbs are just they're double what the biggest more than double what the biggest climbs in Yosemite are, where it's technical. Now, obviously, the pitches were not as hard as climbing the nose, say, uh, uh, on El Cap. And from my perspective, we were pushing our limits, and it felt great. I mean, I never felt like I was too close to the edge on the climb, except when Jeff got sick, and so, you know, we're having this really interesting climbing in this incredible environment, you know, doing presumably the first ascent of this peak by this, the prettiest route on the peak in my mind. Uh that's pretty good for keeping morale up. Now, our morale is not so high in the snow cave.
4: <laughs> uh, you know, it's, uh, I concur with what George said. I don't think we ever talked about going down. We never considered it. It just never entered our minds. I realized that we started really stretching the umbilical cord as we got higher. But I also remember that when we decided to go down, when Jeff was obviously not going to be able to make it to the summit, it started snowing and the weather come back in. George and Michael and I just looked at each other. I don't think anybody said a word. We just started down. So we had this, after all those days, we developed this sort of bond between us that was unbreakable in a lot of ways. And it stayed unbreakable. The fact that we did go down when we needed to, we had stretched the umbilical cord as far as we could. You know, you know in alpine climbing, you have to be very pushy. It's very easy to come up with a good reason to go down. And, uh you'll never get up a climb if you do that. But it's a very delicate balance between not pushing hard enough and pushing too hard. Because if you push too hard, you're never gonna get to climb again. Uh, I always go by the adage, getting up is optional, getting back down is obligatory. But we had really pushed hard, I think harder than many people would have. But we knew when it was time to, to bail. It was that kind of re, uh, relationship we had with each other. It's hard to explain.
0: It's definitely fair to say that you guys pushed hard when you went 26 days on 17 days of food through two storms and everybody got down safely. You're like, that's a that's a big outing in the mountains. That's a, that's a pretty incredible, that's, that's a journey.
4: We got down, remember the last day was brilliant sunshine perfect weather. Yeah, so we're hiking back to camp, and I was a little ahead of everybody. We got <clears throat> the glacier had changed all that time. The fern line had gone up. It was bare ice <clears throat> when we first started. It was snow on the glacier, and then we got to the East moraine where a lot of boulders. were had our camp, and I couldn't recognize anything. I knew I was near our base camp, but I, I just didn't recognize anything. All of a sudden, around a corner, came our cook. Muhammad. And he saw me and he started crying. He, They hadn't heard, heard or seen from us. They hadn't seen our lights or anything for about two weeks. He was there with the liaison officer. There were only two people in camp. And he saw me, came over and hugged me and just started crying. And then I remember we were starving. He said, so he started cooking us sweet chapatis. And I go- gobbled down as many as I could. I... I That night I went to bed on top of a boulder because I felt I didn't feel very secure on the ground. And those chapatis came back all of a sudden. I just leaned over the side of the boulder and lost all that food.
0: (laughs) I'm sort of impressed that your cook and liaison officer spent two weeks by themselves just hoping that you guys would come back at some point.
4: The liaison officer had gotten even fatter. The way in, he was a... a little bit chubby, we called him Captain No-Loads. But he wouldn't carry anything. And I guess what I found out later that he sat the entire time in the tent and he had, a transit, he had a radio of some sort listening to Pakistani pop music. Man.
0: Were, were they going to leave you guys at some point? Like, would they have just gone home in another week if they didn't hear from you?
2: We don't know. It wouldn't have made too much difference to us getting out as as long as they left some food there. Uh, It wouldn't have been been a big issue because uh, we basically had to carry our loads out anyway.
0: And at that point, did you guys just cache some of the loads or bury some stuff and just abandon abandon ship because you're just in survival mode staggering off the mountain? I know we
4: didn't bring everything out.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's no way if you have that much weight, that much rope, and you're starving and it's... It's the end of the trip. You're just like, you know what? Let's just save it here for next season. <laughs> Even <laughs> though you know you're never coming back.
2: I don't remember. Oh, we did come back, though. In you 2016.
4: Guys... What? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So many years is that George? Let's see. <laughs> 38 years later, we come back.
0: <laughs> so, So it's really a testament to the partnership that you guys are all still friends. Did it feel that way on the climb?
4: So large expeditions, they they got a pecking order. Some people feel, oh, I've done all this work and I'm not going to get to go to the summit. So it always seems, in all the stories I've read about these large Himalayan expeditions, they all had discord and backbiting and little clicks would form. We didn't have that at all. I think we liked everybody, each other, before we went, and we still did on the way down, and we still do now.
3: How, well, how much of a testament do you think it is to their skill or their teamwork or, you know, just the hard work, too, that that it did, you know, even as the gear got way better, you know, people are carrying packs that are half the half the weight, essentially. That, that I don't know. I feel like that says something because I, I don't think routes that become such a big-ticket item in such a big-ticket location— Sit, you know, don't get sent. I think it's pretty crazy. I think that it took took to 2018 essentially. Yeah, I'm
0: like, what is that? So that's 22. That's 40 years later. It took 40 yeah. years for somebody to actually climb the route that they almost climbed. That's and even then they didn't actually climb the exact route. Yeah, which, uh, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I think those, as Michael Kennedy was saying though, it probably is a little bit of a, a testament to changing styles and changing expectations of climbers. Because I think that when Michael and Jeff and George and, and Jim I was like, Man, that's confusing. Jeff, George and Jim. It's like a all American team right there. It's like they should all be like middle linebackers or something, you know? <laughs> like it's like uh, but anyway, when, when that team attempted Latok, you know, it's like they just weren't quite at the right era to go full Alpine style. They just didn't quite have the gear yet. But then later teams trying it, you know, sort of had different expectations, like they didn't want to spend 26 days on the wall because they didn't think they would have to. And it seems like the reality is that the route is hard enough and complicated enough that it kind of demands a lot of time on the wall. And, and But nobody else was quite prepared or, or aspiring to that amount of, of toil. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there are plenty of other examples of that with like old school sort of folks doing something the hard way because they expect it to be really hard and putting tons of work into it. And then when, you know, a more modern climber comes along and they're like, oh, I, I want this to feel a little bit easier. And the reality is just that it's not that easy. <laughs> and you're like, oh, geez. And then it's it's hard to do it without putting that work in. You know, it's been 45 years since since the North Ridge Relay Talk 1. What, what does the climb mean to you guys now? It was sort of like an evolutionary
1: step. It was a very powerful trip and it was really cool and and it was super exciting it was my first time in the Himalayas so it sort of opened it opened up some ideas it opened a door to to other climbs and even in retrospect it felt like a sort of evolutionary step and then you know and then it took other steps and tried all kinds of other things mostly failed and got up a few other things but
2: for me a wonderful shared experience uh, I, I mean I just I look back at that as one of the finest experiences of my life.
0: It, did the did the experience on Latok change you guys as climbers or change you as people, besides, besides losing a ton of weight?
4: I don't think so. I think that it made, uh, for me, it made the kind of climbing that I wanted to do and had been doing, it made it more special and that I continued on in that. I decided after that climb that I would never be involved in an expedition, a large expedition. It would always be with a couple, one or two others. In fact, in the last 30 years, almost all of my climbs have been just with one other partner. And, you know, I think about climbing right now. I've been doing it for a long time. I've conducted a lot of clinics. I was a guide in the Tetons. I had clinics at Indian Creek for a number of years. So I've climbed with probably more than a 1,000 people. But when you think of the alpine climbing I've done in my life, I can count the total number of partners on the fingers of my hands. 10 partners over 45, 50 years of alpine climbing. Because one of the real things that I treasure about alpine climbing is the team the camaraderie that you develop, the bonds that you develop. And I tell young climbers who ask me about what, what do I need to do or know about big mountain climbs, I say, well, the most important thing for you is to get the right partner. You want somebody to get along with that has about the same level of commitment. They're willing to push through when they're tired. They're willing to push through when things seem grim, but they kind of know when the when to stop and when they come back. You want you don't want people to have more commitment or less commitment. You want to have someone, you know, and another thing, think about 26 days, you can't bring your A game every day. So you have bad days and good days. And so it's important to have a partner that can be there when you're having a bad day and they can be the strong one. And you can do the same for them. You know, I started climbing. I was in special forces on a 12-man A team. Operational team, and that's where I really learned about partnerships and how you had to trust and like everybody on the team and know that they had your back when things were grim. So you develop, I think, with Alpine climbing with a small team with one or other partner, or in our case, a team of four. The bond that you build is is pretty special, and I don't see that happening for me in any other facet of life. I think that the bonds that I Building those climbs are the most, the strongest bonds I've ever had with
0: anyone. Yeah. I mean, 26 days with a team, it's got to to do some, you know, it's a real team building <laughs>
3: exercise. <laughs> Even special forces don't do that. <laughs> you all have touched on this a bunch, but, you know, the bond you formed on that climb was lasting. And you never all had an experience quite like that again together, but. What have those friendships come to mean down the road? And obviously, you you know, you lost Jeff seven or eight years ago. Um, What have these friendships come to mean to you?
4: Well, as you get older, grow older, I think friendships become more important because you can sit around and talk a lot about the experiences that you you can no longer really have. It's just pretty special. And George, as I said, George and I climbed the Black Canyon. We even climbed a little bit in Patagonia. I have a house in the northern part near the northern ice field. In <clears throat> 2019, George came down. He's never been in Patagonia before. <clears throat> we went into a place called the Aviano Towers, where the uh, approach was more difficult than the climbing. And we did a little new route on a little tiny tower it was only about five, six or five, seven, real easy climbing. We got to the top and the weather changed a little bit. It was kind of cold and, and breezy. We're at the top and I had some of Jim Breedwell's ashes with me. Peggy Birdwell gave me his ashes and she said, scattered them in Patagonia, you know, because he loved to climb there. And then we did. We just scattered the ashes and a condor flew by. It was you know, kind of special. So now I think that, for me anyway, when I go climbing with somebody, I go with them because I want to have that kind of a feeling of camaraderie and not so much about the technical climbing as it is about the experience with the person you're with.
3: Thanks Michael, George, and Jim for sharing your story. In 2018, after 30 attempts by different parties, Latok 1 received an ascent of the north side via variation of the north ridge. That same summer, two Russians, Alexander Gukov and Sergei Glazunov, were able to follow the 1978 line past the high point to where it connected to the summit ridge. But on the descent, Glazunov fell, repelling, stranding Gukov for six days before the Pakistani military completed dramatic long line rescue via helicopter. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape Than Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's episode was produced, edited, mixed, and mastered by Evan Phillips with help from me, Fitz Cahall. Music by Evan Phillips, Joanna Catcher, David Swenson, and Drexler. Our producer is Lauren Delaney Miller. Our executive producers are Ben Endy and Jonathan Retzek for RxR Sports and Lise Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape Than Beer. Thanks for listening.